0: Heavenly Father, our heart's desire right now in this place is to know you. It's to know who you are, it's to know what you've done for us through Jesus, it's to know the reality of not only your existence but your goodness and your mercy and your grace. And so my prayer right now for for me, myself, personally, selfishly, and for my friends here in this room with me, is that you would powerfully move by your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to words on pages that speak about the greatest reality in the universe. Help us see you in the next few minutes. In the name of Jesus, amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If there is a God who exists, a God who has created all things, who sustains all things, then that God must be the most important reality in the universe a God who creates all things, who is the source of all things, and who alone is the one who defines all things and gives meaning and purpose to all things. If there is a God like that, then it is without question, there is nothing more important for us to think about, dwell on, consider, than Him and His purposes. It is the most significant thing we can do. The one who made us, who knows why we were made, without him there is no meaning or purpose in the universe. It's outside of a a self-created fiction of our own making. And so it is not an understatement to say that that our lives depend on knowing uh, him. If there is a God like the God that John is talking about in this passage in John 1, we need to know him. Our lives depend on knowing this God. And so if this God were to, say, reveal himself in the form of a book, then that book would be invaluable. It would be priceless. It would be the most critical thing ever for us to read. And so today we are beginning a series, it probably lasts six weeks, but don't quote me on that since I seem not to be able to get math right when it comes to predicting sermon in a series. Um, and we're going to call this series, See Him, like Jacob said earlier. And this is about a book, the book, the Scriptures. And it's about seeing the God who wrote this and the God whose Scripture is about. Seeing this God that John is describing in this first uh, passage. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring the significance and really the necessity of the word of God in the life of the believer. What does it mean to have this book? What does it mean for us to have God's words in a book? And how does that fit into our our lives? And so today, uh, what I want to do is I just want to begin with really a simple question, and that is, how do we know that there is a God, and how do we know that he has spoken to us? And that what he said is true, that what's in this book is true. How can we trust what we read in this book is from God, the God that John just described for us? And so we're going to use this first passage in John to really open up and set the table for the rest of the the series. So John 1, verse 1 through 12, 1 through 2, I want to look at this real quick, this passage to help answer these questions. John 1, 1 through 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So, John is saying that in the beginning there was a reality that he is calling the Word. Before anything else existed, there was something that existed called the Word. And in verse 2, we find out that this reality, this the Word, is actually a person. John says, he, the Word, was in the beginning. And so the Word is a person. And according to verse 1, this Word was with God. So he has a distinction from God. But he also is God at the same time. He's with God and he was God. So who is this word? What is this word that John is speaking about at the beginning of his book? Well, the Greek word for word here, word for word, is logos. And this word can mean in in ancient Greco-Roman philosophy a reason or a ground, a purpose, but it most readily means a statement or a declaration, a, 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 a communicating of an account of something. And so this word is an account, in a way, of God, his being and his purposes. And yet the word here never came into being. It has always been. Before anything else existed, this word was eternal, which is why it says, in the beginning was the word. You go as far back as you can with your mind, and the word will always be there never came into being. Which brings us to verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so John says of this word, all things were made through him, all of them. Anything you can conceive of was made through him. And John knows that someone might be hung up on this because if there's only one God... How is it even possible that the word can be separate from him and yet not created? And so he reiterates, he says, without him, without the word, was not anything made that was made. In other words, there isn't anything you can conceive of or think of in reality that you've seen with your eyes or not that wasn't made through the word. And so we need to get this at the very beginning. The Word is uncreated reality. He is absolute in His being, which means at a very basic level, He is not dependent on anything. The Word does not rely on anything to exist. Everything else in the universe is contingent on something. But the Word is not contingent. Everything else relies on Him because He is absolute in His being, yet He relies on nothing. That is the relationship between the Word and everything. Everything. The Word is absolute reality. So even if if you think about it in this way, everything else that you can think of has every millisecond of its existence as a gift from the Word. And John continues pressing this even further in verse 4. He says, In Him, in the Word, was life, and the life was the light of men. So this word inside of it is life. John is saying, do you want to know where life comes from? Do you want to know where it originated from? The word. In the word is life. He is the fountainhead of all life in the universe. There is no physical reality that does not find its origin inside of him. And not only that, but there is no life that does not find its beginning in him every heartbeat every breath every act of photosynthesis every division of every cell since the beginning of time has come from one source and that source is the word and he's not just speaking about life in physical reality life in the physical universe but he's talking about spiritual life because after saying in him was the life he says And the life was the light of men. So the light, light throughout the book of John, really, all across the book of John, is used almost exclusively to describe spiritual light. It's used to describe realities like righteousness and goodness and purity and justice and truth. And so what does it mean for this life in the word, the the eternal word, to be the light of men? What is he trying to say by that? Well, it means that any light that we see in this world, any light that we see in this world, whether it is a kind action or whether it is a good or righteous deed, any light, every proclamation of truth, someone helping someone cross the street, anything like that, it all comes from him. There is nothing good that, that, that you have or that I have or that anyone has, believer or not, that did not get its initial impulse, its purity, and its strength to follow through from anywhere other than the Word. The life was in Him. The light was in Him. And the reason this is so critical for us is that when we survey the world, it doesn't look like... There's a lot of light out there. When we survey the world that we live in and we just watch the news for five minutes, it looks like a lot of darkness out there. John 3 says that mankind dwells in darkness. It is like the air we breathe. And he says that people love the darkness ultimately because darkness can hide their sins. What they do in the light isn't in the light when they hide in the darkness. It's not exposed. And this is the natural state of every human being in the world because every, every human being in the world has sinned. We've all done stuff that dishonors God. And I don't need to convince any, anyone here of this fact. We, we may do good things. We may have good motivations. On the outside, it looks good. But if we're honest, our preference... Our desire at the very core of who we are is to do what we want and not necessarily what's good. It is to do what honors us in our desires and not what honors other people or God. This is the natural man. Humility is not a virtue you're born with. I don't know, if you have kids, you know this is true. Humility is not a virtue you're born with, but selfishness is. Selfishness is you never have to teach a child to be selfish <laughs> because they, they get that. They understand it instinctively like breathing. They, they know how to be selfish. We have to teach them to be humble and to be selfless. It's, it's the world we live in is filled to the brim with darkness. And even though the world was created through this word who, who has life and light in him, The world we know remains engulfed in darkness, which is why verse 5 in John 1 is so important. It says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, the light, this, this word, the light of men, doesn't ignore the darkness doesn't write the darkness off, doesn't, doesn't forget the darkness, doesn't even go to war against the darkness in this scene. What he does is he shines into the darkness. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. The Greek here for overcome is catalambano, and it can be translated in your translation, might read a little bit differently, has not contemplated or comprehended, um, but I think katalambano as overcome is actually an accurate translation because throughout the, the Gospel of John, when this word is used in Greek, it is almost always used to describe an event of overcoming, overtaking, aggressively laying hold of. And so what this means is that when the light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, it is because the light is shining defiantly and refusing to go out the light will not stop being shown. Which takes us all the way to verse 14, when John returns to the word logos, the word, and it finally becomes very clear who this word really is. Verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth the word who existed before all time who created all things who was both with god and amazingly still god and in him was life and light that word became flesh And it says he dwelt among us. He pitched his tent uh, among our tents. He lived with us as flesh, and he infiltrated the darkness of the world, and he shined. The light shined into the darkness. And John says we have seen his glory. We've seen the light shine in the darkness, and we've seen his glory the glory isn't a generic kind of glory. It isn't the glory that was given to man. It isn't the glory that's given to creation. It is glory that is peculiar and unique because it belongs to one being, God the Father. John says this glory is of the only Son from the Father. And so now we're peering a little bit into what it means for the Word to be both God and with God. This is speaking to that it's like a father and son relationship but it isn't the kind of father and son relationship that you would expect it's it's different than that and we see that in hebrews 1 let me read you these three verses in hebrews 1 colors really how we should understand this long ago the author of hebrews says at many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days So he's saying, the author is saying, in the last days, God speaks to us by his son. Who is this son? He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And and, and we need to get this. The author of Hebrews isn't explaining traits about the word. He's telling us what it means for the word to exist this is who the word is. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And it says that although God spoke through prophets at one time in human history, now he speaks to us by his son. His son is God's declaration of his not only his being and who he is, but it is God's he is God's declaration of his purpose. He is a disclosure of the reality of who God is. And he is, in this text, entering the world, taking on flesh. John 1.14, um, what we see when we look at this glory is glory as of the only Son from the Father, which is, he says, John says, full of grace and truth. And of course, you know who this word is. It's Jesus Christ the Son of God. And John spends 21 chapters in his book telling us all that Jesus said and did, all that he could say that he said and did, and exploring the majesty of Jesus' grace and his truth and God may have spoken through prophets at one point in time, but in this last time, he's spoken through his son. The eternal word is, is God's self-disclosure. So if you ever ask the question, is there a God who exists? Is there a God who has revealed himself? John's answer is yes. The word became flesh so that you would know, which is exactly what he says at the end of his book in chapter 20, verse 30. Listen to this. John's going to give us the reason he wrote this book. Now, Jesus did many other, things, other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's telling us why he wrote this book. It's the point of the entire gospel of John. He says, I'm going to be real with you. I wrote this book so that you would believe that this man is the son of God. I wrote this book so that you would believe that he is the Christ. He isn't a myth. We didn't make him up. He isn't just a nice teacher. He isn't just a, another prophet in a long succession of prophets. He is more, to, more than that. He is Christ, the Son of God. And this means that when John is talking about the Word and about the light, he's talking about Jesus Christ, the light that pierces the darkness. He's like, do you want to know what it sounded like when the light came through and entered the darkness? It sounded like Jesus. That's what it sounded like. And I'm going to tell you about him, John says. And the reason he's showcasing the glory of Jesus, he says here is so that we may have life in his name. That's what John is after. He doesn't just want us to see it and say, that's boring. He wants us to see it, and in the seeing of that reality, to be transformed by the light. And you might ask, um, that's you might say like that 's clear about the New Testament. I get that um, that that God would use the book of John and the Gospels and all of the epistles that focus on Jesus. I get that they would be part of this equation but But how exactly does the Old Testament in this book show us Jesus because if what John is writing here is is really a testament to who God is through Jesus Christ, and if it's really just a picture of what the entire Bible is, how exactly does the Old Testament show Jesus? Well, John five thirty nine, Jesus says this himself. He says to the religious leaders of that time, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's not just the Gospel of John. It's not just the New Testament. Every single page in this book, outside of the table of contents, every single page in this book testifies to the glory of Jesus Christ. And look here, like the, the these these Jewish leaders, they're not trying to get and make an end run around anything. They're looking in the scriptures. They're scouring the Old Testament just to find this life. He says, "You search these scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life." They want life. They desire eternal life. But what they don't see is that. What those scriptures point to is standing right in front of them. It's Jesus. The scriptures bear witness about me, he says. He is the life that they're seeking. And so even the Old Testament, even the Old Testament in all the different, I'm reading through Chronicles right now. Um, I'm in Second Chronicles and there's a lot of wild stuff in there. And sometimes you ask, like, what does it have to do to Jesus? Even those things have to do with Jesus. They point to Jesus as the source. And it is through them that in believing in his that we actually believe in his name and receive life. And so at the beginning of this series, what I wanted to do today really was lay a foundation by God's grace um, that points to a simple fact that seeing Jesus in the scriptures is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of eternal significance. John is saying Old Testament, New Testament, any Testament, doesn't matter. This entire book is about him. The reality of God shines through the word and the reality of his son is seen and it collides with us so that anyone who, who reads this book or hears a faithful proclamation of the book encounters the eternal word of God. And by seeing him, beholding glory as of the only son from the father, according to John, we get life in his name. Now at this point, what we need to recognize really is that what I'm saying is wildly controversial. You guys might take it for granted or think, yeah, that makes sense to me. But the idea that life only comes from seeing Jesus and us only seeing Jesus through his word is not accepted in most places. In fact, most people would say, that we're crazy for thinking that. The idea that God exists is one thing. The idea that he's spoken to us through a book is another. Most people would say that we are wrong. We're dead wrong on one or both those accounts. And everyone has their own, when they go come to this question about God, who is God, what is God, they have their own evidence to support the idea that they've, got, they've arrived at. They have their own evidence and own ways and paths to support their reasoning behind how they deal with this question. They may appeal to history. They may appeal to science. They may appeal to their own traditions, the traditions that were passed to them from their family. They may even appeal to their own feelings and say, I just feel like God's this way. But what we just read from John is that through writing about Jesus and through the broader purpose of the scriptures in general, this book, a picture is being painted of Christ that is sufficient to give us life. John is saying that the Bible is not a a normal book. It's not a normal book. And I need to be clear at this point because I'm not saying And John is not saying that we are believing something because someone told us to. Like, maybe your mother told you you should believe the Bible is true, and so you believe it. That's not what John's talking about here. And I'm also not saying that after examining the historical record of data and the manuscript counts and all of these different forensic details and scientific details, that we finally arrived and said, yeah, I think the Bible is true. John's not talking about that either. Neither of these things are what John is talking about because both of those things can be wrong. Both those things can be faulty. Historical records can be faulty. Science can be faulty. Things can be wrong about those interpretations and John is not interested in you being wrong about eternity. He does not want that to happen. And he says here that something happens when you read this book or hear its story Something happens that is a kind of knowing inside you. You come to a kind of apprehension of a reality that is a knowing. There is a way you can see Jesus through the word of God that gives you eternal life. It isn't a best guess. It isn't a hopeful desire. It is a kind of knowing that grips the soul of the person who's encountered it. It's a kind of certainty that is unshakable. And John isn't interested in you having lesser certainties. He wants you to know. And if you really think about it, like if God did reveal himself, this would have to be the way he would do it. Because at the end of the day, if he is the source of all truth, if he is the the, the absolute reality, if he's the source of all truth in the universe, then he couldn't appeal to anything to validate himself because all of that truthfulness is contingent on him making it true. And so God can't appeal to outside realities to validate. He validates the reality of who he is through the scriptures. And so John says we can encounter him in the word that convinces us of who this God really is. It's a kind of knowing that is deeper than any other kind of knowing you've ever experienced. And we see this depicted in the Scriptures, throughout the Scriptures. But the, way, the, the place that we see it probably clearest is 2 Corinthians 4, and I want to turn to that next. 2 Corinthians 4, we'll look at the first few verses. To set the stage... For this passage, the Apostle Paul is a missionary. His job is to preach the word of God. That's what he's been called to do. In fact, according to Acts 26, 18, Jesus tells him, I'm sending you to open eyes to turn people from darkness to light. That's why he is doing this. That's God's desire. When when you preach the word, I want light to shine into people's hearts. And yet in this letter, Paul is actually expressing frustration. He's frustrated because there is a plague of evangelists and preachers out there in Corinth and throughout the known world who are twisting the gospel to get followers. That sound familiar to you? It was happening back then. I mean, literally a stone's throw from, in terms of chronology from Jesus' death. And Paul calls these people peddlers of God's word. They're doing this for the selfish purpose of propping themselves up for fame and for financial gain. And Paul's response to this, to be quite honest, is anger. He is furious about this. And I want to listen to his response in 2 Corinthians 4, first verses one through two, as he defends his ministry and deals with this issue of tampering with God's word. He says, therefore, having this ministry, his ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but rather by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul is saying here, listen, I've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. I refuse to practice cunning. I I, I do not dare tamper with God's word. I will not do it because my ministry doesn't come from a desire uh, to to have this job or to be a preacher or, or, or a decision that I made. I received this ministry, Paul says, from the mercy of God. He gave this to me. He gave this ministry to me, and I refuse to lose heart and, and short-circuit to tampering with God's Word. I could tweak God's Word. I could try to make it more palatable. I could take things out of it that people are uncomfortable with, get more converts, less resistance. And he says, no, I refuse to do that. Rather, I will declare God's Word openly, an open statement of the truth. And in doing that, I am commending myself he says, sacrificially to the, to the consciences of the people who are hearing him preach this word. And he does it before God because he knows God is ultimately the one who will judge how he handles his word. It's God's word after all. If God wanted it delivered it in a different way, he would have done it. And yet, despite this, Paul looks at his ministry and he recognizes Many people have turned away. Many people have looked at the gospel that he's preaching and said, that's not for me. And so what is his account of that? Why, how does he explain that? He, he tells us in verse 3 and 4. And he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This passage is so important. It tells us three, three things. The first is this at the center of the Word of God is a single message, it's the meaning of the Bible. Sixty six books. Dozens of different authors, styles, genres, languages. All of those things point to this word in verse 3. Gospel. Euangelion in the Greek. The good news. That is the nucleus of the word of God. That is the focal point of the word of God. That is the center of God's word. All that he's describing, uh, all he's talking about, All of Scripture points to Jesus. Like we already said, it's not just about Jesus being a good teacher. It's not just about Jesus being another prophet. It is, Or even just about Jesus being a divine being. There's more to it than that. It is about the gospel. It is about Jesus being the Savior and the Christ of the world. That's the center of Scripture. That's the Bible's main point. Without Jesus living, dying, and rising from the dead, this book is meaningless. It's meaningless. That is the focal point of this book. That's why we have this book. And so Paul and really all of the other New Testament authors, when you read them, when they talk about the decisive reality at the center of the book that you have open before you right now, they talk about the gospel. It is the gospel that they're focusing on. That's number one. The second thing we see in these two verses is that the gospel here is veiled to those who are perishing veiled to those they can't see it it's veiled to them and what that means is contrary to popular opinion unbelief is not rational unbelief is not rational you may think it is many people out the, outside these doors believe that it is i thought it was like that for years i thought i thought faith is irrational Unbelief, very logical. But Paul's saying, you're completely wrong. It's not a a matter of a lack of facts. It's not a matter of a lack of evidence. There is a veil of blindness over their eyes, and they can't see Jesus. They can't see him. And many people would hear me talking right now and disagree strongly with me and said, if God was real, if he really wanted us to know him, he would do something else than this. He would show up in the sky or, or send a message out audibly. He would do something differently. And Paul is saying here, no, he would not actually do anything differently. And even if he did, you wouldn't believe him. Your main issue is not a a fact issue. It is not an evidence issue. The main issue here is that we can't see him because of a veil on our eyes, that the natural man cannot see him. And the greater reason, I think, another reason I should say that God doesn't reveal himself outside of this is God is, like I said earlier, he is not interested in lesser certainties. He wants you to know him. If this was based on a multiplication table or some aspect of science or something physically that you've seen, it would be based on something that you cannot be completely certain of. And God desires that you have absolute certainty about who this is. Which brings us to the third thing in this passage, what they can't see because of the veil. It is called here the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is exactly what John has already told us. It is exactly what we've already seen in John 1. The light of the gospel is the same light that we saw in John 1. The glory of Christ is the same glory that we saw in John 1. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the image of the invisible God. And this, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, is the most crucial thing for people in the world to see. And Paul is saying here they are blind. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Yet, Paul says, there's a God. When you see the light, you can see him. He is more real than you can possibly imagine. And he has spoken very clearly in his word. Not just in the natural world, which we can see him, but in his word. And so how is Paul going to open his eyes? How is he going to remove the veil? How is that even possible? What hope do these people have? Well, that's why we have verse 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when Paul proclaims the gospel, first thing he says here, get out of the way. He gets out of the way. It's not about me. It's not about ourselves. It is about Jesus Christ being Lord. I'm only a servant, Paul says. I am only a servant. I get out of the way. And the reason I can, I can as a servant proclaim with such confidence is because I'm not the one who's going to remove the veil. I can't remove the veil, Paul says. I'm not him. God is going to remove the veil. If you want the veil removed, God has to do it. And God looks into this thick blanket of darkness that shrouds the minds and the hearts of these unbelievers, these people who are perishing. And he does exactly what he did at the beginning of history. When he looked out at the expanse of darkness that covered the void of nothingness, and he says, "Let light shine out of darkness," and as he issues that command, light explodes into existence. That was more than sufficient at the beginning of human history when he did that in Genesis one and it is more than sufficient now. Paul says God has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is God who does this. He does this. It's not us. He gives a, a command. Think about what he's saying here. He gives a command. And in a twinkling of an eye an eternity changes someone's eternity changes. And Paul calls it what you see when that happens, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, which is exactly what John was talking about earlier. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God the glory of God in the face of Jesus, and to see it, to truly see that reality, in order for that to happen, God must shine the light into your hearts. For an unbeliever, that means death to life. That means darkness to light. That means God's redemption for them. They're saved When God's word is faithfully proclaimed, the Spirit of God lays hold of those words and shines a light into the darkness that shrouds that person's soul and has gripped their mind and their heart. And for the first time, they see him. They see who he is. And they know him. They they know him. There's a kind of certainty there that they're willing, maybe not at first, but over time, they're willing to die for it. Like They know who he is. They know his reality and his goodness. But this isn't just for an unbeliever. Paul's describing the the, the transfer of someone from, from perishing to life, from darkness to light. But this isn't just for an unbeliever. Above 2 Corinthians 4 is 2 Corinthians 3. And I want to read to you the last verse from that chapter. Paul says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What this passage says is that Christianity is not a fire-and-forget religion. It's not simply an act of the will in a moment. It is not simply a, a signing of a card or even a prayer that you say. That's not the fullness of Christianity. Christianity, Paul says here, is a pursuit of the glory in 2 Corinthians 3.18. One degree of glory to another. It is a pursuit of being transformed into the image of Christ Jesus. And it begins with an unveiled face. It begins with a face that can see now the glory of the Lord. If the eyes of your heart has seen the glory of Jesus Christ, you belong to him and you can see him in this book. You can see him. You no longer have a veil. You can behold the glory of God in words that are written about him. And you can see him from the eyes of your heart with clarity. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And as we behold that glory, as we, as we see it, With the eyes of our hearts, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another into the same image, Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. And we are transformed just by fixing our eyes on him, reading words. And a reality from the words makes us more like the word, the eternal word, Christ Jesus And the only way, the only way that you can do that, there is no other way than this book. This is the only way that you can do this. And this entire book points to the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Different voices, different genres, different ways, but it all points to Jesus. It all displays his infinite worth and his infinite glory. And it shows us who God is. So here's the deal for today and for really the next six weeks. We can't, as Christians, afford to make reading this book and seeing Jesus, a book that has, God has in his grace made so available to us in its fullness and in our culture compared to any other place in time before We can't make reading this book a sidebar of our lives. It cannot be in the periphery. Seeing Christ in the scriptures, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, is how we get glory. It's how we get to the glory that's described in this passage. In order to become him, you need to behold him. And he is all over this book. His goodness, his grace, his mercy, his love for you individually and his justice against evil, all of it is here in his story. And I I just want you to just take a second and think about it. I know that um, if you're like me, you're like, man, I really wish I was just there with him when he was teaching. Just be there for five minutes as he says something. I want to see him like that. But um, I would challenge you to think, And I've challenged myself to think that that actually isn't the best thing that could happen. Jesus even said to his disciples, it's better for me that I go. It's better for you that I go, he says to his disciples. I send you my Holy Spirit. And he's going to teach you everything I told you before. And what they learned was in this book. And imagine you are there, maybe in uh, downtown Jerusalem, And you are listening to Jesus preach, and you're there for 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then he's gone. And you never see him again, and the only thing you have is a memory of what he was doing. We have more than that, we have the thoughts of God on paper his desires, his purposes, his plans. And so I would ask that at the beginning of this series, no matter if you read the Bible already every day, no matter if you read the Bible every other day or one or two times a week, no matter if you don't read the Bible at all, I would ask that you would pray that God would grant grant you the desire not just to read a book not just to get through a reading plan, reading plans aren't bad, but not just to get through a chapter, to see him, to see him. And in the next few minutes, we're gonna be participating in in the Lord's Supper. And when we do, I hope that it's not lost on you that that this act of the Lord's Supper, as we worship in song, when we take the cup and the bread, that we are in a real way touching the center of, Of everything we've been talking about today. The Lord's Supper is a picture of the gospel. It is a visible parable of Christ and his work on the cross, what he did to redeem us. And it is the central reality of this book. We are replaying it in our actions, partaking of the the bread and the juice. Communion is about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us and then dying for us. And so I would ask that as you receive those and as you pray and ask God for the next week, weeks, to put on your heart that you would plead with him to meet you when you open this book, to meet with you. And and I'm gonna just testify to you. I've been doing this for years, every day. Not asking, can you show me an interesting fact about you? Not asking, can you show me some cool theological trick? Not asking, can you show me something historically that would be gratifying to me on a personal level? I ask to see him. I just want to see you. One more glimpse. One more glimpse. Just before I put this down, I just want to know you in a way that I didn't before I picked it up. And... Let me just testify that he's never failed. He has never failed to show up. It may not be the same dimension of his beauty. It may not be the same glory of his beauty. But come with an open heart and plead with him to show you. And I promise you, he will show up. This book is one of the greatest gifts he's given his children. And in our generation, with our with our with our in our country, really in our time frame, we have unfettered access to it. And so I'm just I'm just asking that you would not waste it. That you would plead with them in the next few minutes to give him a des, des, to give you a desire to see him. And I promise he will be faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so glorious and wonderful. And um, that you have thought it right and good to speak and to have it recorded in a book so that we could understand you and your desires, Father. That you thought that that was right and good is such an awesome blessing. You didn't need to do that but you want to be with us. You want us to know you. You want us to abide in you, Father God. And so you have given us a book with all of your desires, all of your promises, all of your pursuits, and a portrait of your glory that we see clearly through Jesus Christ in the gospel. And I pray that you'd put on our hearts, my heart included, a renewed hunger, or maybe a hunger for the first time, to make seeing you in the Scriptures a priority in our lives, Father God. That we would desire to meet with you, that we would desire to see your glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And Father, that we wouldn't see the Bible as a a, a showpiece or a museum piece or something that we say we cherish but really spend little time with, Father, but that we would see your word as a, as a window into the reality of God and that in seeing that, Father God, we would be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory. I, I pray, Father, that you would do this, Lord. I know, that, I know that we have schedules. I know that we have so much going on in our lives, Father, But I pray that you just give us a taste, even now today, Father, that would be irreversible and that would create an addiction to your word that would last us the rest of our lives. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.